Let's pray one more time asking God's blessing on the preaching and teaching of his word to our hearts. Father, thank you for this privilege to stand before your people in this sacred desk to preach your holy word. Thank you for preserving your word for us in our language that we can understand, we can have a copy of it for ourselves. We think of those millions around the world still waiting for their first translation of your word in their mother tongue. I pray you hasten the work of those missionaries that are working eagerly and carefully to bring new copies of your word for people who are desperately, spiritually hungry for it. For those of us who have had copies of your word in our language for centuries, help us not to take them for granted. Help us not to allow your word to remain unopened in our bookshelves and nightstand tables and elsewhere, even on our phone apps and tablet apps, help us to recognize the gift that we have in your word and to open it daily that we might consume the delectable, delightful spiritual food that you've prepared for us there each and every day. Now, Lord, we ask that the word that is preached to us this morning might take root and bear fruit in our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. amen. Word has it that there are some killers on the loose today. They kill freedom, spontaneity, creativity. They kill joy as well as productivity. They kill with their words and their pens and their looks. They kill with their attitudes far more than with their behavior. There's hardly a church or a Christian organization or Christian school or missionary group or media ministry where such danger does not lurk. The amazing thing is these killers get away with it. Day in and day out without being confronted or exposed. Strangely, the same ministries that would not tolerate heresy for 10 minutes will step aside and allow these killers all the space they need to maneuver and manipulate others in the most insidious manner imaginable. Their intolerance is tolerated. Their judgmental spirits remain unjudged. The bondage that results would be criminal were it not so subtle and wrapped in such spiritual-sounding garb. End quote. So writes Pastor Chuck Swindoll in his best-selling book, The Grace Awakening, first published in 1990. I read this book earlier this year, and it has had a profound impact on my own life. And I hope, by extension, my family and my ministry too. Like the series we just concluded on justice, this new series will trace the word grace through scriptures with the hope of rediscovering what is so amazing about grace. 
My hope that we will be refreshed and renewed as individuals, as families, and as a local church body. Swindoll points out that some of us, by nature or by habit, have a negative personality, and others have a positive personality, and that our personalities are often revealed on our faces. Our children, my own children, our children have told my wife and I that depending on what it is that they want or need from us, they will go first to the parent that has the yes face (laughs) for that need. Even children can read our yes faces and our no faces. Any of you married to a spouse with a no face? People with a no face most likely lack grace. Swindoll recounts the story of President Thomas Jefferson and some friends who were out riding on horseback one day. They came to a river that was flooded over its banks and had washed away the bridge. And one by one, the men began to cross the flooded river very carefully because the flooded rapid river was dangerous both for men and their horses to cross. There was another man traveling on foot who was a stranger to the president and his men who were on horses. And the man decided to watch as the men crossed the river on horseback one by one. After watching several men cross the other side, the stranger asked the president if he would carry him across the river. And the president didn't hesitate and agreed to this favor by the stranger. And as they made it across, the stranger jumped off the back of the president's horse. And one of the president's men asked the stranger why he chose the president to ask this favor. The man was shocked because he didn't know it was the president that he had asked the favor. He said, all I know is that some of your faces were, on on some of your faces were written the answer no, and on some of your faces were written the answer yes. His was a yes face. Do you think Jesus had a yes face? I think he did. Now, I've never seen him, but From what I've read about him, he most likely had a yes face. If people with a no face lack grace, people with a yes face are full of grace. And you know what the Bible says about the Christ, right? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we find one of the many descriptions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's 100% God and 100% man, yet he was full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that there is something incredibly unique about this God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the amazing combination of grace and truth. And so full is Jesus of grace and truth that anybody who hangs around him for any length of time will experience his grace and hear his truth. Think about the 12. 
the disciples of Jesus who became the apostles of the church. Their lives were transformed by Jesus' grace and truth. In fact, John goes on to tell us just how amazing Christ's grace was in the lives of his disciples. In John chapter 1, verse 16, we find this. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And then John did something that I'm certain was very unexpected. He compared and contrasted the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace found only in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 17, John writes, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now something you need to know about the Old Testament Jewish people and even the New Testament Jewish people was that God's word was so sacred to them. Number one, nobody owned their own copy of God's word because it was so sacred. It was such a holy text that nobody had a copy of it except what was found in the scrolls in the temple and in the synagogues. And there was such a reverence, a reverential fear and respect of God's word, so much so that the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they took the original Ten Commandments found in the law of God, and they added another 600 commandments to it. So that in case you break one of these other 613 commandments, you at least won't break the, the, the ten, the, the, the great Ten Commandments found in the Old Testament. So they just kept ending. So that's why when Jesus came along, he told them how much they had added a weight, an unbearable burden to the people of all these rules and regulations. And so by making this comparison, John is pointing out the Jewish religious system with all of its burdensome rules and regulations that crushes the spirit of joy out of religious life. And that's why early on in his ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And compared to the Sadducees and the Pharisees who had added on all these hundreds and hundreds of commandments and rules and regulations that the Jewish people had to follow, otherwise they would be kicked out of the synagogue and the temple. Jesus wanted to distinguish himself and his ministry from those of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were so legalistic that they, they were harsh, judgmental, prejudicial grace killers. And this is one reason why Jesus gained such a large following in such a short period of time. People quickly saw that he had a yes face. While all the Pharisees and Sadducees they knew had a no face. And that's why the Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus. Because his thoughts and his ways were so very different than their thoughts and their ways. Theirs was rigid religion. His was a grace-oriented relationship with God. Interestingly, we find... No place 
in the scriptures where Jesus ever used the word grace. But he taught grace, and he lived grace without ever speaking the word as far as we know. Remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and dragged out and placed in front of Jesus? The religious leaders tested Jesus' orthodoxy by asking, what should be done with her? Jesus knew that the law required her to be stoned to death. But he also knew adultery takes two, both a man and a woman, but they had only brought the woman. I wouldn't doubt that the man that may have been one of their very own religious leaders and so they left him out of the picture, but brought the woman to be judged by Jesus and, and stoned. In fact, not only did they bring the woman before Jesus, they brought the stones with them. So Jesus bent down and he wrote in the sand. And nobody knows what he wrote, but maybe he scribbled some of their own names and the sins that they had committed. Because he knew them, like he knows your heart and mine. And then Jesus turned to the woman because, after all, these men, after Jesus stooped down and wrote, they dropped their stones, they turned and walked away. Then Jesus turned to the woman with compassion and he said, go and sin no more. Pure grace. First mention of the word grace is found in the Old Testament. It it literally means to bend or to stoop. Later, it came to include the idea of condescending favor. Pastor Donald Barnhouse said that love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. And love that stoops is grace. I don't know how many of you follow the royal family in Great Britain, but I came from Jamaica, where Jamaica was part of the British Commonwealth. And in my lifetime, I actually saw Queen Elizabeth with my own eyes in the island of Jamaica. I was working after school at my father's gas station, and she came rolling by in a convertible uh, Rolls Royce. And I remember seeing her wave to the crowds that line the street. Well, this idea of grace is seen whenever the queen or the royal family, members of the royal family are in public and they stop to shake hands or allow you to curtsy and kiss their ring on their finger. They have no they have no reason why they need to stoop to hang out with the commoners because they're royalty. There's no law that says they have to do that. But they do it, and when they do that, it is an act of condescending love, grace, unmerited favor. Someone has said that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And here's the amazing thing about grace. It's absolutely free. 
it is to be freely given and freely received, no strings attached. Most of us have a hard time with this concept because we're used to working hard for whatever we have in life. We were taught that there is no such thing as a free lunch. But in God's economy, there is. And, and he has paid the infinitely high price for us who are too poor to pay the infinite price that grace demands. And so as we revisit grace with the hope of renewal, here's what we can expect. Number one, you and I will have a greater appreciation and respect for the grace gifts of God in our own lives as well as in others. Grace gifts like salvation, life, laughter, music, beauty, friendship, and forgiveness. Number two, we will be less critical, less concerned, and less petty about the choices that other people make. We will live and let live, as we say. As we revisit with hopes of renewal, we can expect, number three, that we will be more tolerant and less judgmental. No more guilt trips for those with whom we disagree. We will have more faith and trust in the sovereignty of God for the outcomes that we seek in our personal relationships. Those of us who are grace killers work so hard to try to control other people, whether it's our spouses or our kids or the people that work with us or for us or our neighbors or... We're control freaks because we can't trust God with the outcomes in life in our relationships. But when we understand grace, there's a freedom that comes that allows us to let others live in freedom. And our faith grows as we trust in the sovereignty of Almighty God. Number four... We will grow in our spiritual maturity. Interestingly, in the last verse of his last letter to the church, Peter, the Apostle Peter, urged the church to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I believe there is room for all of us to grow in that marvelous grace. If you believe that, say amen. If you got a no face, you need to grow. If you can't say amen, that's a sign that you need to grow in grace. Now let's look at a familiar verse about God's grace and then some unfamiliar ones that are closely connected by way of contrast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is a very familiar passage to most evangelical believers. But sometimes, as we all know, we can lose the powerful effect of profound truth simply because it is so familiar. So let's begin with a few questions. The Apostle Paul wrote that we have been saved by grace alone. 
The first question that comes to my mind is, safe from what? Safe from what? Well, we've been saved from the consequences of our sin. And Paul makes this very clear earlier in the same passage in Ephesians 2. The second question that comes to my mind is, what are the consequences of our sin? Answer in a word, death. And not only physical death, but also spiritual death. Physical death separates us from our earthly life and relationships. But spiritual death separates us from our heavenly life and relationships with God and all the saints in heaven. And that's how powerful and offensive sin is to a righteous and holy God. The third question that comes to my mind is, how? Just exactly how are we saved and by what means? Answer in two words, grace and faith. God's grace and faith are the two agents God uses to bring about our salvation. You say, I I know that grace comes from God, but I thought faith was my own. I realize that we're all tempted to think that faith is something that we naturally have and, and all we need to do is exercise our faith by believing or trusting in Christ for our salvation. But it seems to me, if we look at this passage, that even our faith is a grace gift of God. Because look what Paul says next in verse 8. He says, and this not from ourselves. After he says you're saved by grace, and then he says you're saved through faith, He then says, and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then he says, not by works, so that no one can boast. Just so we don't get this twisted, Paul told us twice in the negative, this salvation thing is not from yourselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's not, it's not about you. You can't earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is not from ourselves. It is not by our own good deeds, our own good works. It is a grace gift of God. In other words, a free gift. Free for us, paid by God. And here's the reason why salvation is set up this way. He tells us, the last part of that verse, it's what's called in Greek a henna clause, which means it's a purpose clause. So he's telling us the purpose why salvation is all about God and none of us. Here's the reason. He says, so that nobody can boast. That is, nobody but God. Nobody but God can boast about the salvation that we have. You see, if we can get to heaven by doing certain good deeds, then we'd be up there talking about, so what would you do to get to heaven? How much money did you give to the church? Okay. 
But how much did you give to charity outside the church? How many volunteer hours did you give? Yeah, but I sang in the choir. Oh, yeah, but I was an usher for seven years. Beat that. Shoot, I taught Sunday school for 10 years. I got all y'all beat. I was a prisoner in the nursery for 12 months. 12 months straight. Did you notice the personal pronouns used in all those braggadocious statements? I, 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 and you, you, you. See, when there's so much talk about I and you, there's no room for Jesus. And he's the only one that did what was absolutely necessary for anyone to get to heaven. And we have the nerve to talk about what we did in compared to what you didn't do. Grace killer. That's what that is. Simply put, killing grace. He freely gave himself up to be crucified on a Roman cross of crucifixion so that those of us who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul, after making the grace of God clear to the Ephesian church, had to do the same thing to the church in Rome. Check it. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we find this. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, y'all, this is deep. You see, if you, ever, if you know anything about the Jewish people, if you've ever been to Israel, of all the prophets of Israel, Abraham is the He's the Don. Abraham is the dude. Okay? He is more revered than all the other prophets in Israel. It's Abraham. So, Paul is here saying, see, people think, because the scriptures tell us Abraham was what? A friend of God. Not many people were called in scripture a friend of God except Abraham. So Abraham holds a very high, high and lofty place among the Jewish people, even to this day. Jews scattered all over the world. And so Paul is here saying, if Abraham, and by the way, Abraham was a rich guy. He was a rich dude. He had hundreds, if not thousands of acres. He had tens of thousands of sheep and goats, and camels, and horses, and donkeys, and cows, and that was how they measured wealth in those days, cattle and land. And there was nobody that came close to having what Abraham had. And in those days, and the scriptures seem to, to, to uh, indicate this as well, 
your wealth was seen as a blessing from God, and it was tied to your relationship to God, which was as a result of your obedience to God. So there was this line of thinking that the reason that Abraham is so wealthy is because he's blessed of God. And the reason he's so blessed is because, well, he's righteous. And, and he's, he's kept the commandments. And, and he's earned God's favor and God's grace. And so we want to be like Abraham. And that's why the Jewish people, they said, well, I'm a son of Abraham. There were arguments in the New Testament. You can see them in the Gospels when they were arguing over, well, are you a son of Abraham or you're not? Because if you're not a son of Abraham, then you're not in the kingdom. So closely tied and so revered was Abraham that they're like, you better be something like Abraham if you're going to hope to get in, which means to obey all the rules and regulations so that you can have the blessing of God, the favor of God, not only on earth but also in heaven. But Paul blows this up. He blows up this whole idea in Romans here. He says, what shall we say? That Abraham, our father, discovered in this manner? In fact, Paul says Abraham himself knew this truth. He was justified, he says, if Abraham was justified by works, then by all means Abraham could boast. But he can't boast before God because God knew that there was nothing that Abraham did that deserved all the blessing and favor that he received from God. So what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You remember when God came to Abraham? He was minding his own business with his family there in Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. And God came and said, yo, Abe, uh, listen, I want you to go to this place and um, I need you to pack up and leave tonight. And Abraham said, where are we going? I ain't telling you. How long am I going to be there? I ain't telling you. How am I going to get there? Walking. Okay, let's go. You need, you need some faith to do that. You need some faith to obey God like that. It's like this couple going to Colorado. They're leaving all that's familiar to them. As far as I know, they ain't got no family in Colorado. Y'all got family in Colorado? They're leaving to start brand new to go where God is. And one of them has to go raise support to do what they do. It takes faith to believe God. So it is Abraham's faith in God that then allowed God to release the blessings on him, and the blessings of God followed Abraham everywhere he went. And so the Apostle Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as if he was perfectly righteous. That's how powerful faith is. Romans chapter 5, Paul continues. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this, in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Paul continues to expand and explain to the church there in Rome, many of whom, if you know anything about the Romans, rules and regulations. Matter of fact, our very method of government in the Western world, in Europe and the United States, comes from ancient Rome. The fact that we have a Senate comes from the ancient Senate in Athens, I mean in, uh, in, in Rome, okay? So our own system of government, rules, regulation, order, comes from the Romans and also the Greeks, okay? So they're all about rules, regulations. And here's what he says. Paul says to the Roman church, listen, since we've been justified through faith, not by the law, we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus was the only one that fulfilled all the law. And that's why faith in Christ is what's necessary because he's the only one that is able to and was able to keep the laws. The purpose of the law that God gave in the Old Testament was to show us our incapability of keeping the law. Did you realize that? God gave us the law to show us how sinful our human hearts are and how weak we are to show us that we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. So he says, because of that, we have peace with God. Now, interestingly, what's the deal with having peace with God? What's the opposite of peace? War. So that means we are at war with God until we find peace with God. Why are we at war? Because we did stuff to offend him. If I, how many of you are married? I hate to even use this illustration because it's actually happening too often and too common, but I'm going to say it. Men, married men, if I slept with one of your wives, would that offend you? I see a stick in the back waving at me already. Now, I mean, we laugh, but it's really not funny. He would be, any one of you men, would be raging mad. It would be war. In fact, you might lose your sanctification to come after me. And maybe not with a stick. I can run from a stick. Gary can't run that fast. That's his. But I can't outrun bullets. And you probably would not stop until you brought me to justice, even if it's vigilante justice. It'd be war. When we sin against God, it's war. 
because God is holy and he's righteous. Just like every marriage is holy and righteous and sacred before God and among you as husband and wife, it's sacred. So for me to violate your bedroom, violate your marriage, that's exactly what we do when we sin against God. It's war. And so Paul wants us to understand this thing, and that's why he he uses this word peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because God poured out his anger and his wrath and his punishment for all of our sins on the cross. So he waged war against himself, his only son, on the cross. What we deserved, the rage and anger that we deserved, Jesus took it on the cross. Therefore, because the wrath has been poured out on Jesus, we have peace. We can have peace with God, and here's what he says. He says, through Jesus Christ. Notice how often that's repeated. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace or this grace in which we now stand. Nobody stands before God unless you come through Christ. Can't. And the reason we can't stand is because we stand in judgment. And to stand in judgment, you can't stand very long because you're going to be smoked before a righteous and holy God. So you can't even stand there. I've been to court many times. Thankfully, not for myself. But on behalf of men and women who find themselves committing crimes and needing God's grace and mercy. So I'm down there at 26 in California all the time in the courthouse. And I know where I see the judge. The judge sits up on these high, what they call the bench, behind a big old desk. And the lawyers, both the prosecuting attorney and defense attorney and the victims and the, the perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators, they're all standing beneath the judge. And the judge sits seated in a high back leather chair in his robe, and he's there. And the judge, by the way, is God in the courtroom. Matter of fact, before you even walk in his court, his name is on it, and he tells you that this is his courtroom, and whatever he says goes in that courtroom. And every time before the judge rules, he asks for the defendant to come and stand before him, and the, and the lawyers, defense lawyer, turns and ask the defendant to come, and they stand before the judge. And they present their case, and if it's a judge trial, what's called a bench trial instead of a jury trial, the judge makes a decision, and I've seen people collapse. Collapse under the weight of the decision when they've been sentenced for a crime that they have committed having been found guilty. So the only way that you and I can stand before God, a righteous, holy judge, is if we have been given access by faith into his grace. And then, then there's joy, which is what he says at the end of verse 2. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because even though this salvation has not yet been fully experienced, 
We have such confidence in the Word of God. We have such confidence in what Christ has done on the cross. We have such confidence in the faith that we placed in Him that not only can we stand before the judgment when it's time to stand, but secondly, there's hope. And we rejoice in that hope of the glory that is to come. Then finally, and I'm through. Look at verse 18 through 21. Romans 5, 18 through 21. Further down in that same chapter of Romans 5, he says this. Consequently, in other words, therefore, here's what's coming. Here's what's the result of all this grace. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, who was the one who trespassed? Remember? Adam in the Garden of Eden. Well, it was his wife, but he was held responsible because he was right there and he knew better. He should have done better and he should have taken that fruit from her and said, that's not for us. God said so. But he stood there silently and then he took from her and ate and God held him accountable. So men, guess what? We're responsible for our wives and our children. There's no passing the buck. We take responsibility. And so he says, because of Adam's sin, the one trespass, condemnation came for all men because all of us, everybody that was born after Adam and Eve, of course, Adam and Eve were created, not born. And so everybody born after Adam and Eve were born in what? Sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin. But the the whole deal is pinned on Adam here, which is what Romans 5.18 says, consequently, as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness. Man, I love this. In other words, none of us have any acts of righteousness that we could do to stand in judgment day. Only the one act of righteousness on the cross. And Parenthetically, let's remember, before the crown and the throne, there's always a cross. That's why I have these things up here. So we always remember and never forget. The cross comes before the crown. The crown of thorns comes before the diadem, the crown of jewels and gold. Before we are seated in our everlasting throne of righteousness and peace and rest, we have to go through the cross of Christ, of suffering, the way of suffering. So this one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, or sorry, the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added. This is, this is amazing. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. See, Paul is reminding us again of the purpose for the law. The purpose for the law is to show us like a mirror our own sinful hearts and attitudes which we can so easily, you know, set aside 
and, and, and think we're better than we really are. But the law is like a mirror. It shows us we got boogers on our noses. That's what it does. You got boogers on your nose. Here it is. Take it off. That's what the law does, shows us our own sins and blemishes before God. So the law was added so that trespass might increase. Trespass being the, the guilt, the guilty feeling we get when we sin against others, against God, against ourselves. But wherever sin increased, here's the good news. Wherever sin increased, grace, woo, grace increased all the more. Man, I get excited about that. Yeah, that's why, so, it's why this is such good news. That's why grace is so amazing. That's why we, hundreds of years later, we're still singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's why, because it is so amazing. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now, having been saved through no works of our own, now, now that we've been saved, the Bible is now saying that we are set free to do the works of righteousness, which now comes as a result of the new man, the new woman in Christ Jesus that's living in you. Now it begins to produce the work to bring glory to God and righteousness and justice on the earth. So, just that, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, he ends by reminding us it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not a lot of room for I and you. In Paul's theology. It's Jesus plus nothing. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus plus nothing. Tell him it ain't about you. Ain't about you. It's not about me, and it sure ain't about you. It is all about Jesus. And that's why grace is so amazing. Let's stand as we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This is God's time of invitation. What has God said to you this morning? Have you heard a still small voice of the Lord saying, this is the way, walk in it? Maybe he's saying to you, it's time to change your no face to a yes face. Well, that can only happen by his grace. Maybe it's time to say, God, I need more of your grace. 
more of your amazing grace. Maybe it's time to just confess that there's nothing that you can do to change yourself. But by the grace of God, can we be saved? And when we are saved by His grace, it then begins to produce the works of righteousness because our mind is changed. Our hearts are changed. There is an internal change that produces the external results. And so you begin to think differently and speak differently and the countenance that radiates from your face is different. And it's the same kind of difference now found in Christ and only in Him. Maybe some of you, this is an opportunity to simply say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I stand condemned and I stand in need of your grace. Pour out your grace on me today, Lord. Have mercy on me. Forgive me for my legalistic ways. Forgive me for my unforgiveness, my unforgiving heart. Forgive me for my critical spirit. Help me to be more gracious, more kind, more loving, more forgiving. Lord, remind me today that I am not you. I'm not God. You are the judge and I am not. Thank you, Father, for these reminders from your word today. God, forgive us for being grace killers. Help us instead to be conduits of your grace, having received it ourselves. Let us be so full of grace and truth, like Jesus, that you use us, you pour us out on others that they might sense and feel and see your grace and truth, that combination package. Grace and truth in love. They might witness that. They might hear that in my voice. They might see that in my face. They might experience that in the way I interact with my spouse, with my children, with my grandchildren my co-workers, with my church members. God, help us. Help us not be like the Pharisees and Sadducees of old. Help us to rediscover this amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.